This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Um, welcome to another episode of Journal Club. Daphna, how's it going today? Uh, I'm doing great, but I'm not the one on vacation. So how have you been? Reading papers on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's dedication to the cause, for sure. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I almost want to go around the audience with the tip jar uh, for the effort that it took me to read all these papers this this past two weeks. <laughs> this there was so many of them. I was secretly hoping for a light two weeks of benign articles, but they were all bangers, literally. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but thank you. We are still um, in the... We're still... In prospect of getting uh, our journal, our book club, sorry, mm -hmm. aired on August 1st with uh, author Don Raffle on her book, The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney, where we talk about the origins of the neonatal ICU. If you have read the book or about to read the book mm -hmm. and want to send us questions, you can do so until July 23rd. You can send them to our email address, nicupodcast at gmail.com or to our Twitter at nicupodcast. Send us written questions, audio messages, Uh, we'll play them on the air. Um, again, uh, this is a chance uh, for all of the community to interact with an author and, uh, and a story that is fascinating. Anyway. Yeah, and it, uh, it, goes by, it goes by fast. It's a really easy, interesting read. So if you haven't picked it up yet, it's not too late. Yeah. Um, and that's, um, that's really it. Have you been on uh, service, Daphne, these days? Well, you're away, so that means yeah, we're all. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm going to pay the price when I come back. That's right. We'll anyway. trade. <laughs> all right. So this week uh, we're reviewing articles from from JAMA, from Journal of Pediatrics, from Journal of Perinatology. We also have um, some articles from Pediatrics, from Children. But I mean, are we going to be able to get around to all of them? I don't know. But no, the should, answer is no. We won't be able. To the answer is no. <laughs> But I guess, I you know, guess, the I guess episodes we... always finish and we never get around to all the papers we intend to talk about. And we were trying to limit ourselves to an hour, an hour, 15 minutes, an hour, 20 minutes. And every time we hang up, I say, oh, gosh, I really wanted to talk about that one. <laughs> I know we have to sometimes at some, at some point we should pull the audience and see if we should extend it to another half an hour or two hours. I don't know. Can we even do that ourselves? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Um, the first paper is in JAMA, and it's a, and it's a, a paper that has a, a title that will grab your attention. Rates of Bronchopulmonary Dysplasia Following Implementation of a Novel Prevention Bundle by first author Maria Vilosis. Um, and this is a study from the California Perinatal Collaborative. Um, it's a very interesting article 
where the objective was to develop a consistent sort of BPD prevention bundle in order to approach BPD as a preventable disease. It's funny because this is something we've talked about before, and it's interesting to see other centers approaching BPD in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, what the what the group there did, I want to clarify that it is the California Perinatal Collaborative, but it is a um, it is a single center from that collaborative that is. Um, that is uh, publishing this data. And they pretty much created a bundle that they followed, and then they compared in a plan, do, study, act cycle, sort of the outcomes, and uh, they looked at whether or not they were able to reduce their rates of BPD. Uh, So this study included 484 infants from birth weight 500 to 1,500 grams. This was obviously a level three unit uh, from the Kaiser Permanente Southern California system. And they looked at data from 2009 to 2019. They divided this time frame into three periods. They had their baseline in 2009. Then they had an initial set of changes uh, followed by a plan uh, study act uh, cycle. So that was 2010, 2014. And then the full implementation of their bundle followed from 2015 to 2019. And the primary outcome was to look at BPD in infants with less than 33 weeks gestational age. And uh, they used the Vaughn definition, uh, looking at the uh, degree of oxygen requirement at 36 weeks of gestation post-conceptual age. Um, what they they actually also I was I'm going to stop the discussion right there for a second because they didn't just use the Vaughn definition; mm-hmm. they also looked at an, another gradation in terms of not just following into the BPD, yes, BPD, no. They had they looked at the different interfaces as well, and they called it grade one using nasal cannula airflow, two liters per minute or lower. Grade two was nasal cannula higher than two liters, mm-hmm. and grade three with invasive mechanical ventilation, following a little bit of the Jensen criteria. Um, what they were able to find is that um, their gestational age was, was, was small, but the... The, during the three-study period, BPD decreased from 31% to 1.6% after yeah. the implementation of this bundle. And, and that's obviously a huge, a huge reduction in BPD that was uh, worth noting. Absolutely. And when they looked at the different rates of these grades, um, the rates of combined grade one, two, and three BPD decreased from 24% to 9.3% with a p-value of less than 0.08. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, 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 the list of um, mortality was unchanged, if that matters uh, to anyone listening. But obviously, these reductions in BPD were, were striking. And, um, and so I think that was, that was very interesting. I'm curious to see, uh, to hear what your thoughts were. Well, I think, yes, absolutely. Just listening to the data, you, you think, well, what, yeah, what did they do? And I think that's probably the coolest thing about this study is obviously it's a bundle. Um, so they um, had a bunch of key drivers, which we can, will mention, but I think some of it uh, is something we can all do in every single unit. Um, so basically the biggest, I think, driver for their unit was that this, they put here shared mental model that BPD is uh, avoidable, but requires aggressive preventative care. Um, and so 
you know, big initial changes uh, were just discussion on daily rounds of compliance to the bundle, um, which we know is so important um, in quality improvement work. Um, discussion at weekly neonatal meetings of challenges and opportunities regarding care agreements and changes, major changes in management made only after consensus of neonatologists. And I think that's so important. And you and I have seen how effective that can be um, when you really have a team of people who know the babies, who reevaluate the case frequently. Um, you can remind each other of the components of the care that individually we may miss. Um, and, and I think that's, I think that's a huge thing that we should underscore. Um, obviously there are other key drivers, um, are components that we know are important to BPD management, but again, are mm -hmm. not, are not earth shattering. So, uh, basically using the minimum necessary, uh, ventilation or intervention, um, Low thresholds for surfactant use, babies getting surfactant dosif on a ventilator, using volume ventilation, um, good criteria for extubation. Um, they, they have, they actually, and I, will, I think we should post this on, on our Twitter account after the show. For sure. They, on the sub, in the supplemental material, they had the bundle. And they had yeah. two bundles, basically, one for babies less than a kilo and babies mm -hmm. above a kilo. And uh, I think we, we will share it just so that people can take a look at, uh, at what they did because it's obviously very extensive um, and, and, and it includes a lot of the stuff that we all know. Absolutely. Yeah. And in individually, none of those are, um, you know, groundbreaking, um, but that's, it's, that's the, the, it's the group, right? It's a bundling the them thing. together, um, being um, consistent, having the good consistency and being um, – really in, uh, you know, really thinking so, about what you're doing with each, each individual baby. So it's, a, it's, it's actually what you said, plus more, I believe. Number one, it's nothing new, right. but even the intervention that they used on an, on a singular basis, you could contest that they're beneficial. Mm -hmm. I think, for example, and I'm not going to dissect their roadmap, but NICU management, day of life one. Mm -hmm. They wrote high-frequency ventilation as the primary mode of ventilation. Well, I think there's some evidence that's quite old to support that. Does that mean that we should all start putting babies on high-frequency? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. um, and that intervention, for example, is just one of the many things that they've done. And yet we know that this is not the standard everywhere. But And they, and they acknowledge that in their discussion. They're saying, we know that... At face value, each intervention, the benefits have not been proven, but we looked at what our groups could do, what where the consensus lies, and they they built that uh, they built that that bundle this way. And we I know this is, yeah. this, so much of our care, you know, it's not about necessary the the technology right or the ventilator, uh, but it's how you use it, how comfortable is the team using it, and sometimes doing what your team is comfortable with. If, if we don't have concrete data, may, may be the safest thing. Um, but I think mm -hmm. it's just like the consistency that they had. And it sounds like they had some really good buy-in from the rest of the team, the nurses and the respiratory therapists. And that's, that's I think, a big stopgate. Yeah, and they did some things that were a bit... They were, they were definitely controversial. Some of the things that were a bit novel in terms of their use of azithromycin mm -hmm. to try to really try to screen for urea plasma that, that I think should be done more. And uh, and and there were some questions. I, I think 
at the end of the day, their data can be torn apart and you can make a case for either way. At the end of the day, the baseline characteristics were taken out of 45 patients, which is a low number. Mm -hmm. The following changes were measured on 200 plus patients, which is much larger. Their uh, mean gestational age was about 28 weeks. The one thing that was interesting that they, they did mention that to me caused a significant problem was that they had a change in the functioning of their unit throughout mm -hmm. the study period where they used to send babies to lower acuity centers mm -hmm. for after 32 weeks, which went down significantly by like 30% during the implementation. So then you wonder the, if those babies now are staying in your unit, does that, I guess, in, in quote, dilute your numbers? I'm sure they, they thought about this, but I didn't see anything in the paper that was mentioning how they accounted for that. But the bottom line is, the point is, we're, if we're not going to come up with a, with a silver bullet to fix BPD, we need to come up with these bundles where we can be sort of homogeneous in our care. And there's no doubt that BPD rates can come down if you put in bundles of evidence that have been sort of uh, tested before and you bring this multidisciplinary model that the BPD collaborative sort of is advocating for. Um, there's no doubt that the outcomes are going to be better. Yeah, I agree. And and then having had being able to have the components um, of of that care and 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 you know regionalizing care and maybe if you aren't able to have the components for that care, you know it's to do our due diligence to get babies to places where they can get all of all of the components. Yeah, and and if they um, and it doesn't matter whether the babies got transferred and didn't get transferred. What right. I wanted to know is did they still account for the babies that they had transferred to these level two centers in their data? Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's just, it's just some tedious points, but anyway, that was a very interesting paper. Mm -hmm. That was a very interesting paper, a novel approach to BPD for sure. And just this mindset of saying, well, this is potentially preventable if we do the right things is really the, the, the novel aspect of, of BPD care that we need to push forward. And a reminder that, like you said, there's no, there's no, silver bullet. We just have to do consistent weekly reevaluations for each baby about how we can optimize the care. And that starts on day one and it doesn't end until, until really they go home, right? Until really they're off of oxygen or they're on their, um, you know, home readiness support. So mm -hmm. it's a good reminder. Yeah. All right. Um, we're going then, uh, there was nothing else really significant in JAMA or JAMA piece this, this time around. Um, let's move on to Journal of Pediatrics. Mm -hmm. Is there an article that you want to start us off with, uh, Dahna? Well, I think there are a few we definitely have to talk about. Um, I, I guess maybe we can start, since it does sometimes pertain to BPD babies, is this um, big uh, secondary analysis of the Primaloc trial. So oh boy, <laughs> it's, a, it's a sticky paper, but we might as well do it early, right? Um, Let's go so for it. So association between baseline cortisol serum concentrations and the effect of prophylactic hydrocortisone in extremely preterm infants. So again, this is a secondary analysis um, from the Primiloc trial, um, which as a reminder is uh, early low-dose hydrocortisone. Um, and so the, the objective for this secondary analysis was to better define kind of some serum cortisol normative values um, before in the first day of life, and then to evaluate whether those cortisol values 
um, had any effect on the benefit risk ratio of receiving um, this prophylactic hydrocortisone course. Um, so the enrolled in the Primalox study, babies before 28 weeks of gestation, um, they included 325 babies in this kind of secondary analysis. Um, and uh, they have some neat um, scatter plots of the of the cortisol levels, um, which we'll talk about, which are very interesting. And we can, again, post to the Twitter account if you're following along. Um, and what that shows is there's really a a wide, wide range of, of cortisol uh, levels for babies in, in the first uh, day of life. And, and we know that that's probably true uh, for neonates across an admission. Um, but the results that they found um, were that, again, they looked at one of the things they did look at was BPD free free survival. And so um, increased cortisol levels. So they used um, a cutoff uh, Z-score for uh, cortisol um, were associated with a significantly higher chance of BPD free survival, but only in the babies who did not receive hydrocortisone. And so um, that uh, difference was lost in the babies who who uh, were in the intervention group of the hydrocortisone. Um, the other things they looked at were uh, they were looking uh, at some of their adverse uh, events, uh, in particular IVH, uh, high-grade IVH, and um, spontaneous intestinal perforation. And so I thought this was very interesting. So what they found was that the cortisol Z-scores um, for infants treated with the intervention group, the prophylactic hydrocortisone, predicted a risk of high-grade IVH and SIP. So basically, the babies with higher cortisol levels um, and who received the, the prophylactic intervention um, were, were at higher risk for those adverse events, uh, but not so the babies who had lower cortisol levels um, at baseline. Uh, so I thought this is very interesting. And you and I are always talking about on the podcast and, and article after article just reminds us how important that individualizing care is. And I think that this really underscores that, that we need more data for for some of these sweeping interventions that we're, we're trying to, to use in the in the unit, I see you. You have something to say. <laughs> no, I mean the the one the one thing this article highlights to me is the the fact I I may have gotten this wrong clinically so many times mm. because you're like mm -hmm. you have a baby that could benefit from hydrocortisone and you say should I get a level and you say oh after all they're very small they're probably a little bit adrenal insufficient mm -hmm. and and that that is again wrong you should potentially get a hydro uh, a cortisol right. level before you make a decision and then the other thing which I never really taken into account, not that it was intuitive, but all these prenatal factors that affect um, the, uh, that affected the outcome uh, in terms of the cortisol level mm -hmm. after birth. Um, I thought that was, I thought that was very interesting. So they said uh, multiple, um, multiple gestation. Um, let me see. No, that's not really uh um, that's not really what I wanted to look at, but they looked at basically um, uh, major perinatal events were correlated with cortisol Z scores mm -hmm. adjusted for sex to better determine covariates. Anyway, antenatal steroids, 
periodural analgesia were significantly mm-hmm. associated with lower cortisol levels, whereas multiple gestation, clinical choreo, and early onset sepsis were significantly associated with higher cortisol serum concentrations, which I, I, I just didn't know what to make of this. On the one hand, <laughs> right, they say higher cortisol levels in the beginning are good, but on the other hand, these are sort of clinical perinatal factors that Choreomyelitis is known to cause more BPD down the road. So, mm-hmm. which one is it? So, <laughs> at right, the end of is the day, it the is it the stressor that caused the cortisol elevation that is the risk factor, or is it the combination of getting a medication you don't need because you already have the the support? It's it's tough to say. One thing I I do think this underlies is a, a lot of people will say, well, we don't we don't know what to do with the cortisol level. And, and I think this just shows that we don't know what to do with the cortisol level yet, but, but probably with enough work, um, which has kind of been kind of poo-pooed in the last decade, I think about even evaluating cortisol and when, you know, because it, because when you look at the scatter plots, you say, how can we make sense of any of this data? Um, but I that's, think- that's the, that's the thing. And they did they did acknowledge that. They said the cortisol serum concentrations were not normally distributed, right? So you right. would expect a nice little bell-shaped curve or a, a, a hyperbolic curve in terms of having rising, right? That's the thing that we always thought. It's like, oh, the lower you are right. in gestation, the lower your cortisol and the more mature you are. And it's not true. It just doesn't hold the graphs. The, the plot is all over the place. So I don't know if, again... It's hard to say. They have like 500 something babies, mm-hmm. I think. No, they had 300, 300 samples that they were using. 25, yeah. 25 which is which is which is big. I mean, it's kind of difficult to say, hey, maybe they need more, but maybe we do need more. Um, well, I don't know. The we're plot- learning about yeah. those um, phenotypes, right? We've we've talked about this on yeah. almost every episode that are your prenatal risk factors, your uh, your body um risk factors, you know, are you infected? Are you not infected? Your, your weight, uh, all of those things, I think we will help us individualize care eventually. Once we, once we can really delineate, you know, which phenotypes mean what. Yeah. I I think uh, to me, at the end of the day, what do you, what do you take to the bedside? I'm just curious to hear what, like, how would you approach supplementing hydrocortisone. Yeah, well, you know, in our you are in our unit right now we're not we're not doing prophylactic hydrocortisone. I think there's definitely a role for it and something that, you know, we we have been talking about. Um but just like I feel uh, about almost every of these early interventions is that it probably is the right answer for some babies and we just have to decide yeah. um which babies are most at risk for an intervention and which babies will get the most benefit for it. Um, but I potentially, if I had a baby who had a very high cortisol already, it may make me say, well, maybe they don't need more steroid. Um, maybe that's not the right thing to take away from it because like we said, maybe it's the stressor that's causing the, the long-term outcome. Um, but it's hard not to pay attention to, to this. No, I, I agree with you. I think I, I, that's the same takeaway that I had as well. Um, more work needs to be done for sure. Mm -hmm. And, and it's definitely not yet the time to put every small baby on hydrocortisone sort of low dose. And, and I think if you're considering it, then definitely get a cortisol level and make a decision because those, those adverse events are not benign. When you talk about Mm -hmm. grade three, four IVH and SIP, these are major. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, we'll see. 
Um, let's take a little bit of a break and go over quickly another article that I thought was just, it's, it initially was funny to me, but it is not funny also. Um, this is also in the Journal of, P of Pediatrics, and it says maternal self-report of tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis vaccination during pregnancy correlates with patient-specific electronic medical records. And it's by first author uh, Eileen Song. And uh, I think this group is out of New York and North Carolina. And what was funny is that this was a survey uh, completed by a convenient sample of postpartum patients in the New York metropolitan uh, area, metro, New York Metropolitan Hospital. And what they did is ask them about their Tdap vaccination status, and then they compared based on the EMR and whether or not they had received the vaccination. And what they found, which was the funny part, is that most of the mothers, if they tell you that they did get it or not, that usually correlates. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And I thought, oh my God, what a what an earth shattering sort of uh, novelty, uh, which reminded me of this famous joke about the ER where you call the orthopedic surgeon saying, "Hey, I have a kid with a with an amputated arm," and they're like, "Did you get an X ray?" Right? I mean, it's like unless it's in the EMR, it doesn't exist. And but that's that anyway. That's neither well, here we nor know there. I we like know that we know that patients lie to us, right? We know that they lie because. Because everybody wants to to look good. That's exactly why patients lie. But there is something about moms and this responsibility of of housing a, a fetus that I, I I think that pregnant women lie less than the general population. <laughs> Probably. And the one thing that then I was I was amused by the paper because obviously they have like this little two by two table of. This is per the mother. This is per the EMR. Mm -hmm. They had yes, no. Mm -hmm. And basically at the end of the day, it's like almost 90 something percent that are concordant. Meaning if they said no, then that was no. And if they said yes, that was yes, et cetera. And then I looked a bit deeper at the paper, just again, why? I don't know why I did that. But they looked at, so the, for the person that way, it did not match. Mm -hmm. why, why did it not right. match? And then they said, when exploring factors, Associated with discordance between maternal self-report and the EMR, uh, univariate logistic regression showed significantly increased OR for, and I'm quoting, non-white, non-Hispanic backgrounds and public insurance, household income below 75000 with a p-value of less than 0 0.5. And that made me think, because then that made me think of people who are obviously um, either more strapped mm -hmm. financially in, of, of poor background. And to me, it it made them look not really as malignant, but more as not almost aware of what's being done to them in the process of the medical system. Mm -hmm. And it made me think that for patients that where there is limitations, whether they're financial, whether they're based on on uh, on education, we have to be doing more to make them take ownership of their care. So that these types of things that made me really sad about our healthcare system in the sense that. Well, then we should be explaining to these parents better mm -hmm. what's happening to them because then they shouldn't be any discordance. And so it, it, it took a serious turn for me there. Sure. Well, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, yeah. that's an, that's, I'm glad you fa I found that, that pearl of wisdom in, in this paper, but certainly, um, you know, uh, concern about the medical system, mistrust of the medical system is still alive and well and rightfully so, um, especially for for groups, major groups, you know, in, in our country. Um, and so, you know, 
I'm not surprised that patients lie to us, I guess, is is, is the point. And um, for some of these families, especially when it comes to children, they wonder, you know, what happens if I am truthful about some of these things, uh, you know, and, and so. And, and, and that's the thing. I'm not sure if that was an issue of being of lying or being truthful. Right. I was wondering if it was like, I don't remember. They gave me a bunch of shots and I don't sure. remember what they were. I don't sure. remember. I don't even know what is Tdap. And if that's the case, because again, uh, just based on income, which often correlates with education, if you cannot recall what these things were, then maybe we should dispense again, like for kids vaccination cards, like, hey, this is what we've done to you. So that mm-hmm. if you're being asked and you don't remember, then you can pull this out and refer to this. Again, we need to do a better job. And so I thought that was interesting. Um, because initially I thought, what if, what a, almost like a funny paper, but it, it, it highlighted something pretty serious and pretty systemic, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Breaks over we've, next paper. We've got some other big papers. Uh, so the one, evaluate. the one I really liked, mm-hmm. the one I really liked was actual and potential impact mm-hmm. of home NG tube feeding program for infants whose neonatal intensive care unit discharge is affected by delayed oral feedings by Joan Legata, and this is a group out of Wisconsin. Um, do you, I'm going to go over the article mm-hmm. quickly, and then you'll tell me what you think. Mm-hmm. The, I, the objective was to compare healthcare use and parent health-related quality of life in three groups of infants discharged from the NICU. And basically, what they did is that at three months of age, after discharge from the NICU, they compared healthcare use, quality of life, and the three groups were kids discharged on oral feeds, kids discharged on NG feeds, and kids discharged on G-tube feeds. And they had 180 infants. And I'm just going to give you the uh, the conclusion, and then we can talk more about the data, mm-hmm. compared with infants who had NG-tube feeding. Infants with G-tubes had more GI or uh, gastrointestinal or tube-related readmissions and emergency encounters. And um, orally fed infants showed no difference in use, meaning NG and orally fed showed no difference. NG and G-tube showed a significant difference. Uh, multivariable adjustment did not change these outcomes. The, the quality of life assessment at three months did not differ between groups. Infants discharged home with NG-tubes saved 1,574 mm-hmm. NICU days. The conclusion is NICU discharge with NG feeds is associated with with reduced NICU stay without increased post-discharge healthcare use or decreased parents' health-related quality of life, whereas G-tube feedings were associated with increased post-discharge healthcare use. Um, All right, I'm going to hold off on my overall impression of this paper. What do you think? (laughs) Yeah, well, I think there are a few points to make. Um, They had, I think, really good criteria for who would be eligible for an NG tube. Um, And I think that's important when we're we're making, you know, decisions. Um, Just for the for our listeners, the babies had to be greater than 36 weeks. They had to be greater than two kilos, five days without events. Um, post the discontinuation of caffeine, 48 hours in an open crib and less than 0.5 liters of oxygen and already consuming about 25% of their feeds PO. Um, And I think all of that is reasonable criteria. And I I think all of us have been in that position where you say, gosh, the only thing really left for this baby is to learn to eat. Um, 
And uh, there were, uh, the babies going home with G-tube obviously had higher respiratory support. Um, most of them were consuming less than 25% PO after uh, two weeks of meeting their discharge criteria, which I also thought was was reasonable. You know, the babies were term-corrected age and still having significant difficulty with feeding. This unit um, did use bridal placement um, to secure the NG tubes, which is also, um, I think, an important factor because it may have limited how many times that NG fell out and parents had to um, return for care. Um, but if we just look at the feeding-related um, re, you know, connections with the healthcare system, the, the oral group actually had four feeding-related events. Uh, the NG group um, had um, four also feeding-related events, and the G-tube group um, had 19 um, G-tube-related uh, concerns, dislodgement, bleeding, uh, mm. irritation. Um, so they actually had more kind of interaction with the healthcare system um, given the the G-tube, which we, we hope when we send parents home, will have, is a, is a, you know, safer, more, we say more secure alternative. Um, so I definitely wanted, uh, to mention that the other thing by the three month study period, uh, 77% of the babies on NG feeds, um, were on all, all PO feeding. Um, so when we talk to families about, you know, how long will I need a G-tube or how long will I need the NG-tube? I think that gives us some good data there. Um, but what I was really impressed by is that there was really no change in the, the health-related um, quality of life uh, that was parent-reported. Um, and I, I guess I wasn't so surprised. Um, I, I was pleased that there wasn't a difference between the NG group um, and the G-tube group. But um, I... I was surprised by a few things. The G the babies who did go home in this group with G tubes were um, sicker, right? Higher acuity, had multiple uh, medical comorbidities, um, and I it is just so refreshing that that actually that their quality of life uh, parent reported scores weren't higher. To be perfectly honest, mm -hmm. and yeah. it's just a reminder how parents rise to the challenge, and that what we as providers think. Um, impacts their quality of life is is different than than what parents uh, think about quality of life. But those parents did um, document feeling less prepared, needing much more equipment, uh, much more training um, to do the care for their baby, which is which is true um, with the G tube care versus the the NG care. I I almost dismissed the G tube group outright mm -hmm. um, in that study, and the reason being that honestly i think we think very much about putting a baby through a g-tube i mean this is a, a very multi i mean in our case it's a multidisciplinary decision mm -hmm. where we talk among multiple neonatologists we talk mm -hmm. to the surgeon we talk to the gastroenterologist and when you look at their babies in that group it's 65 babies but but they clearly were obviously sicker That's i mean right. uh 46 of them with congenital anomalies um there was um there was the, the number that went home on room air, just to give you an idea as well, was 34% in the G-tube group mm -hmm. compared to like 80 plus percent right. in the other two groups. So I was like, all right, fine. So these babies are very sick and they, they you think through, do I put, I, I think if anybody puts a baby through a G-tube in a very nonchalant way, you're mm -hmm. doing it wrong. <laughs> so it doesn't look like this was the case here. And we know it's a, it's usually an unavoidable situation. But the question was so many times you have parents with 
you're like, they could potentially do well at home That's with right. NG. Do I wait, like you said, or do I keep them in the NICU for or just send them home? Now, I think the study was great because it shows you if you think the parents can do okay with it, again, that's a big that's a big thing, then send them. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I was very happy to see that there was no significant difference in the number of readmissions and the quality of life stuff, like you said, is is key. Some questions I had that were not addressed is that the numbers of babies who went home on NG feeds at 34 plus week was 51%. Mm -hmm. And I didn't say, see them address that. I'm like, that sounds like a large number. Um, I am not sure if this was, again, is this in order to minimize length of stay, in which case fine, or was this, it just, I would have liked to know more about that. And, um, and, and that's really it. But I think that the dilemma that we often have as to, do I send babies home or do I watch them here till they learn to eat mm -hmm. and potentially catch another infection? I think that paper shows you, you should really consider NG feeds. Again, small numbers, NG group two feeds was like 35 patients. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, again, this is data that's published in a major journal that, that's been reviewed, peer-reviewed, and I think it helps us with making decisions. Well, I think one of the things we frequently say is, do, do I think this is safe? Do I think this is a safe okay. thing for, for families? And uh, I mean, uh, the readmission, the, you know, re-presentations for care, two babies with reflux, um, one for replacing the NG, which I thought was incredible and really, I think, supports the 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 bridal, use of the bridal. And then one baby who um, came with significant, it sounds like abdominal compromise requiring an X-lap, but this is a baby who previously, who was a known gastroschisis. So I don't even know mm -hmm. what to say about that. But, um, you know, do I think this is safe? I think, uh, you know, a key component is, is, is maybe the bridal, you know, can, can we, can a parent keep the NG tube in the right position? Um, you know, we know that they're frequently in the wrong position, even in the hospital. Um, and mm -hmm. so I think if they can keep it in the right position, they don't have to come back because it keeps falling out. Um, and mm -hmm. you know, we think this is a parent who can adhere to the instructions, um, that, that this is something we have to consider, um, because, you know, this also wasn't a, a, you know, two epochs or two randomized uh, arms where we were keeping kids in the hospital versus sending babies home. But potentially we may even see uh, a greater change, right? Because maybe the babies do eat better at home. Um, so that's, uh -huh. that's something else that we, we haven't even considered. But I, I think the data is, is striking that this is um, potentially a safe Thing. Um, the other thing they had, which is very unique, is that they had a specific clinic to to manage uh, to help these families navigate that, and I, and I think it just underscores the importance of um, good um, follow up care post discharge. Also, but I, I for the agree people who don't you. know. Sorry, the you know it wasn't really about do we give them a G tube or do we give them an NG tube. It was really um, can they go home with an NG tube or do they stay here for potentially weeks to two months, three months, right to to learn mm -hmm. how to eat. Um, so, what do you want to talk about the bridal the bridal system for people who may not be familiar with it? Well, yes, and I'm no I'm no expert. <laughs> Um, but it's it's basically it's basically like almost like a, a ring um, that goes in the the nair that attaches to the to the um, enteric tube so that it's it's adherent at that correct position um, within the nair. 
Um, and some hospitals are even using bridles um, inpatient, not just for discharge. Yeah. I don't have a lot of experience with them. I haven't used them very frequently. I have, I have never, um, I have never used it either, but my understanding is that it it loops basically, right? Right. Everything goes in one air Mm -hmm. and then you sort of catch the other side of the tape in the oropharynx and you bring it out in the other air and then you just tie it Mm -hmm. the, the nostril. Anyway. This this podcast is not sponsored by Bridal, but <laughs> <laughs> no. But the biggest argument I think is: is this safe? Is the baby going to get a lung yeah. full of feed? Yeah. And I think they've at least shown um, potentially the safety of of the intervention. Yeah. What else? Uh, I think we have to talk about, I know you're excited about this one uh, with our uh, oxygen saturation targeting. Yes. So, um, also from the Journal of Pediatrics, effect of a novel oxygen saturation targeting strategy on mortality, retinopathy, prematurity, and bronchopulmonary dysplasia in neonates born extremely preterm. Um, lead author, Dr. Uh, Srivatsa. Um, this is coming from the Neonatology Associates uh, of Atlanta. Um, so basically what they did um, is what many hospitals have been doing as new literature is being presented, is they evaluated uh, three different epochs during um, their kind of history. Uh, So the first epoch uh, between 2007 and 2010, second epoch between 2012 and 2014, and third epoch between 2016 and 2019, which as as we all know, um, the data was very much changing on oxygen uh, saturation targets. Um, So they, uh, again, were looking at what most of the um, oxygen saturation target uh, groups we're looking at incidents of any ROP, especially severe ROP, and that requiring treatment, BPD, and mortality. So their first epoch was basically kind of standard of care um, before using any um, it, any technical technological intervention. Um, the second epoch um, with targeted uh, oxygen saturations, um, they used uh, a a monitoring tool in addition to their patient monitors that help them formulate um, histograms that look at what percentage of time babies are spending in each um, saturation percentage. And then in the third epoch, um, they had uh, an additional, in addition, the technology enhancement was incorporating simultaneous um, uh, oxygen saturation and fraction of inspired oxygen measurements. Um, And so what they found, um, I'll tell you kind of what the data looked like, and then then we'll get into the nitty gritty. But they had um, 600 babies in the first epoch, 380 babies in the second, and 550 um, in the third, so total of 1,500 babies. Um, and mortality, any ROP, severe ROP, ROP needing treatment, and BPD all showed significant downward trends across the three epochs. Um, and so I thought that was interesting. I think our discussion will mirror that discussion about the um, uh, BPD bundle in that, you know, it's 
it's very much about kind of the culture in the unit um, and attention to the intervention. So um, what I really liked about the study um, is that uh, histograms, something for us individually to talk about, because not all units are looking at histograms. And I think that's um, an important feature. Not all monitors do histograms. You and I have worked in facilities that have histograms and facilities that don't have histograms. And at some point in time, you feel like you're walking blind if you don't have the histograms, because you don't know how much time the baby has uh, been desaturating except for nursing report. And nurses can't be right. at the bedside around the clock. I think right. some of their other interventions, which you know were not stated as their concrete interventions, but they had 12-hour printouts of the histogram, which they reviewed with right. the nursing staff. Um, and so, so – go ahead. Uh-huh. No, 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 go ahead. Yeah, and so they in twelve-hour uh, printouts that um, both listed uh, time spent in hyperoxemia, time spent in hypoxemia, and using this uh, lability index. So um, how how labile were the oxygen saturations? Uh, so again, they probably spent a lot of time focused on a few babies who were the most um, extreme. The other thing they used is this oxygen contract with the staff annually. So they um, were having uh, staff, it was voluntary, but read, you know, a small document about the education, about the intervention, um, giving, um, empowering the team that they were also going to be invested in this intervention. Um, and so I thought that was remarkable. It just shows, I think, how important some of those things are when we're trying to roll out a, a new intervention. I'll yeah. let you say your piece. Well, no, my piece is not far from what you're saying. I think this paper is is showing the, sta- the sad state of affairs with the desperate need that we have for an approval of automatic FIO2 uh-huh. titration. That's right. So we, we know that this technology is out there where the vent will basically adjust your FIO2 based, based on, on the target your size. Sets. Right. And this is still not available in the United States. It's available in Canada. It's available in other countries. And if you have this, it really negates all these new interventions mm-hmm. that the that the paper has suggested. But I was very happy to see this paper because it provides you with an alternative until you can have that technology That's at the bedside. Right. And and the the technology that they're using here is very basic at the end of the day. I mean, you just need to have these monitors. I think these are the Philips monitors that can provide you with histograms. And then they had, like you said, that little attachment that they, it's basically an, an FIO2 uh, sensor at the level of the tubing, and they basically monitor the FIO2 and give you, and basically uh, in real time, and they were able to get these printouts with the SATs with the FIO2 requirement. And and again, if you're, it's by having this continuous type of data that you can impact outcome, and it's not surprising that they were able to see improvements in both mortality, any ROP, ROP requiring treatment treatment and BPD. So we need to monitor FIO2 and SATs very closely. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, this is a a type of MacGyver situation where it will be useful. And whenever the Clio, the Clio is the, is the continuous um, adjusted FIO2 on the vent. Once that comes out, this will become the standard. I have no doubt about it. Yeah. I mean, study after study has shown that, you know, tight, 
tight control of the saturations is effective. I'm always weary about, uh, you know, studies where the data collection is really the epochs are linear, right? Because our overall care is getting better. Um, it, yeah. Was it the oxygen saturation or was it all of the other things that we're, we're learning and doing differently? But but I think this was well-written. They gave us all of the information about how they got their um, staff invested. And so mm-hmm. I think they probably didn't get a lot of somebody saying, well, I'm not going to chase that baby, you know, but because <laughs> right. you have to, we know that you have to chase the baby. If they need a little bit more oxygen, they need a little bit more oxygen. And if they need less, they need less. And that may change multiple times throughout the day. So yeah. very interesting paper. Are, are we done with general pediatrics or do you want to go to general perinatology? Do you have anything else you want to talk about? Gosh, let me see my, my list here. Um, I did. I did want to highlight this um, article: associations between uh, neonatal MRI and short and long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes in a longitudinal cohort of very preterm infants, uh, preterm children. Um, that's the one you wanted that's the to one review I, also. Yeah. That's the one. That's the one I was going to mention. Perfect. Yeah. Um, lead author: Lisette Jansen. Um, this is a paper out of the Netherlands. Um, this is. Um, more data from their PROUD study, preterm brain injury, long-term outcome, and brain development study. Um, So they wanted to look at um, neonatal or MRI markers of brain injury and then reassessing babies at behavior, by behavioral outcomes using the Bailey at 2 and 10 years of age um, Uh in, in a longitudinal cohort. And I mean, it's just amazing. Anytime we can get a longitudinal cohort, obviously we can mm-hmm. learn so much from them. Um, it's very difficult to do, and especially in in our country here in the United States. Um, but they were able to get 112 children born less than 32 weeks of gestation, um, mm-hmm. it, and they had very very good follow up. Actually, even at the 10 year mark, uh, so they looked at cognitive, motor, and behavioral outcomes uh, during follow up. And the the short is after adjusting for some perinatal factors and level of maternal education, uh, the global brain abnormality score um, was associated um, with differences in cognition and motor skills and behavior at two years of age. But this is very interesting, was not associated with cognition at 10 years of age. Um, And the biggest predictor of cognition at 10 years uh, of age almost despite their brain injury score was level of maternal uh, education. education. And so this didn't hold true for things like motor skills, which uh, we know that changes um, on MRI um, very much predict uh, long, even long-term motor outcomes. Um, Mm -hmm. But I thought this was important. Um, I think some people can read this uh, article and say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. And, and I, thought differently. I think um, even more so it matters, right? What their post-discharge environment is like. Um, some of it, it may be genetic, obviously, and we, we don't have any influence on that. Um, but even as neonatologists, we have to be advocates for uh, early, you know, early intervention, good, strong uh, childhood education, and um, 
because not every baby has a mom with very high education. And so if we are really going to change outcomes for preterm babies, then um, we have to give parents more resources and, and, and focus on, on some of the environmental factors. What Absolutely. do you think? And like, like, like we spoke with Betsy Peel on, on yeah. the podcast, it should be that once parents do go home, we have to surround them with a, an environment that would allow mothers to continue on their journey to becoming a professional, becoming, right. getting, edu- getting educated, because you see that it matters so much. It shouldn't be that, oh my God, I had my preterm baby when I was 21, so I left mm-hmm. college and, and now I'm just working. It shouldn't be like that because if you can help this mother get to the highest level mm-hmm. of education possible, it will indirectly or directly, I guess, benefit directly. the baby. I yeah. thought that was cool. Super cool. Yeah. So I'm glad we could talk about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think now we've got to move on. Now we've got <laughs> to move on. Journal I, I don't have many. I, I don't have many more. I think I have f- four or five articles, and we can go quickly through them. The first one, while you move on to the Journal of Perinatology, is in the Journal of Perinatology there was this paper by the group that I used to work with at Mount Sinai in New York uh, during my residency that looked at something that was quite interesting. Uh, I don't know if you picked up on it. Renal insufficient renal insufficiency. I'm sorry, in children born preterm examining the role of neonatal kidney injury. Mm-hmm. Uh, first author is Margaret Pouljou, and all the authors I know personally. A- Anne-Marie Stustrup uh, wrote my letter of recommendation for fellowship, <laughs> and uh, Robert Green is an amazing guy. Andrea Weintraub is amazing. Dr. Reed Adam is a good nephrologist as well that I've, I've got briefly to work with. And their study... So you'll be, you'll be, you'll be unbiased on your review. Completely, completely unbiased. <laughs> But it was an amazing study. No, I think, no, I'm going to be very honest. The reason I'm very impressed by this study is not because of the, the strength of the data or the strength of the analysis. It was the story that it said, that it showed. It was aimed to identify the prevalence of renal insufficiency, insufficiency in children with a history of prematurity right. and acute kidney injury. So then they prospectively collected their cohort and they followed them at five to nine years of age. And obviously, they had categorized them using the the I think it was the the K the KDIG or the K uh, no they used the Aiken I'm sorry the Aiken staging mm-hmm. criteria, and they categorized them as having either no AKI stage one stage two stage three and so on. Okay, and then they followed them, and I'm going to read you the results because it's just very interesting. Fifteen of forty three participants had previously undiagnosed renal insufficiency. Only children with no AKI history or stage one AKI presented for follow-up. So when I read that, I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. Like they're only getting only that segment of the population that had either very mild AKI or no AKI at at all. And then the results came out. Children born preterm with a history of stage one had higher serum creatinine at follow-up, but Mm -hmm. were not more likely to have renal insufficiency compared to children without stage one. And that was what was shocking is that all these kids... The 15 kids that they did follow that came back had some renal insufficiency, even though Mm -hmm. they did not meet criteria for kidney injury in the neonatal period. And all these infants obviously were born um, extremely preterm. The gestational age on average was 27.6 weeks in the no AKI group and 25.8 in the stage one AKI group. But what was shocking to me is that I was expecting them to have relatively good renal function. And it shows that even if their kidney function in the preterm, in the very immediate neonatal period was not great, they still have a high risk of renal insufficiency at five to nine years. Mm -hmm. And they even had to refer one of the kids um, 
And then they looked at they looked at the mother history, which obviously played a role. There were five children born to mother with hypertensive disease during pregnancy who presented at follow up. While none of these children had AKI during the NICU stay, three of them, so three out of five, had signs of current renal insufficiency. Only one child had elevated BP at follow up, in addition to low GFR. Which mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is a big deal, right. and. And some of them had to be referred immediately for for renal follow-up. And I think these patients probably present much later in life with Mm -hmm. severe kidney disease. And this is another sign that I think this should be part of the discharge bundle if you're born below a certain gestational age, follow up with a nephrologist. I think to everybody listening, do not skimp on the nephrology follow-up after discharge. I think these are very, very important. And uh, I was was baffled by the fact that these babies had this degree of of kidney injury so late in life, considering their immediate neonatal history. Yeah, I think it comes back to we like things we talked about with Juliet, who um, you, our listeners, will meet uh, on our episode mm-hmm. that airs on the eighteenth. Um, that that being preterm affects your long term health, um, and so you know we have to consider that as part of. Uh, you know, have to continue to include that as part of the history um, when mm-hmm. when, we, when these patients present for care. The other thing that was almost a little scary is that they weren't having high blood pressure, right? So they're going to go undiagnosed. Unfortunately, we feel like, well, if your blood pressure is good, everything's probably fine. But I know, um, you know, that's that's our biggest screening tool. And in fact, I think a lot of pediatricians are moving away from things like routine urinalysis, and so. Um, Maybe this is a cohort, uh, you know, a subgroup of the population that that still needs them. I don't, I'm not making that recommendation. Yeah. I'm just saying we don't have any other way. You know, we don't have any other way to follow them unless they're following up. With uh, I think it's good that this data is, is out there because yeah. I think at some point the the, the the societies of pediatric nephrologists are going to come out and saying, if you're less than 30 weeks, you should follow up with us regardless. And the data is going to substantiate that. It's not going to, it's going to, because if you don't have that data, it appears like, oh, we just want to stack up our clinics, right? right. It's not true. Um, this is really, really needed. Right. All right. Yeah. Um, I think we have to talk about, we've already, we've already broached the topic, but um, this uh, article association between maternal, maternal cervical vaginal swab positivity for urea plasma or other microorganisms and neonatal respiratory outcome and mortality. And because urea plasma is becoming uh, a much, much more common topic of discussion. Um, uh-huh. So lead author, Karen uh, Van Mechelen, I may have Mechelen, I guess, Mechelen yeah. butchered that name. Um, so this group out of Belgium and the Netherlands um, were looking to investigate the association between uh, those cervical vaginal cultures, uh, treatment, um, and then neonatal outcomes. So they enrolled 480 neonates born prior to 32 weeks gestation. Um, And then they were divided into groups according to culture results. So they looked at babies who were, or they looked at babies born to moms whose cultures were either urea plasma negative, other bacteria negative, urea plasma Uh positive, other bacteria positive, (laughs) uh, 
urea plasma negative, other bacteria positive, or babies, mommies who just had urea plasma. So I thought that was really important for them to uh, distinguish, was there something else going on, or can we really say that it's uh, urea plasma? Can you blame it on the urea plasma? So that's really, I think they did a great job of setting that up. So, and the swabs were done at about, uh, let's see, let me tell you here. So what they found uh, were that uh, maternal swabs showed that urea plasma colonization was independently associated um, with BPD at 36 weeks with an odds ratio of 8.3. In neonates with and without maternal urea plasma colonization, um, BPD occurred at 12.3% uh, with colonization and 3.8% without. Um, yeah, that was huge. That was difference. that was a very impressive uh, 13% compared to 4% just based on, on, on colonization of the mom. It, it's, it's nuts. Yeah. And they did find, uh, which is also not surprising, but maternal colonization with other microorganisms in addition, uh, separate from urea plasma, uh, was associated with higher neonatal mortality, uh, lower gestational age at birth, and lower birth weight. Um, and uh, I believe also an independent predictor for, for BPD. Um, Mm -hmm. so I I thought this was a really interesting study. I think, um, you know, it makes us, I think that eventually urea plasma screening will be part of routine OB care. I also think that HSV screening will (laughs) become more of a routine part of, um, OB care. Um, but I think if we can pick up potentially some of these moms earlier, could we, could we even prevent some preterm birth by, by treating urea plasma? I don't know. Um, and then certainly in our group of babies who, um, you know, should we be screening our babies? Should we be treating our babies for urea plasma? I think that's really the, the question. That That's the key. Somehow, I'm not exactly sure why, testing for urea plasma in uh, cervical vaginal swabs is very easy and cheap. Absolutely. Somehow. I don't know why. And, and then it's easy and cheap to treat also. <laughs> but that's the thing. And then to test it on the baby, to take a, an airway aspirate either from, from the sputum or from any from the, anywhere, it takes such a long time. And yeah. I've seen many uh, neonatologists, myself included, who wonder, saying, well, do I treat the baby right away? That's or right. do I wait, wait for the rheoplasma culture to come back? Well, this paper seems to lean us in the direction saying, well, if the mother's positive and the baby is small and you have a concern, might as well just treat with azithromycin. I mean, um, it clearly shows that you, you you almost don't need that link of the baby being positive for it mm-hmm. to, to try to reduce that risk. I think that's very interesting um, because it feels very silly sometimes where you have done this as well, where you send it on the baby and you treat anyway, and then it comes back negative, negative. and you're like, yeah. oh, sure. <laughs> but but at, it's it's nice to see, again, This we have to quantify this. The numbers are small. They're not that small, but they're small. But yeah, the data is there. And so I would say this is, this is great in terms of making clinical decision at the bedside in the baby that is born small, that the mother's urea plasma positive. Are you going to give a course of azithro? Again, I don't think azithro should be part of the empengen sort of bundle. It should be not given to every baby. But if the mother's positive and the baby's small and you're intubated after birth, well, I would consider it. Yeah, and then the question becomes, right, when, when do we... What? 
Oh, there you are. I said the question becomes, when do we treat, right? Do we treat right away uh, for a baby who's sick? Uh, we know that uh, mycoplasma pneumonia and neonates typically presents at about the third week. Do we wait until the third week or can we prevent some of those respiratory decompensations by, by, by treating earlier? Um, I think mm-hmm. this is also um, a reason why, you know, we it's important that we don't work in our silos. And it's nice that we've we've got, I think, a little bit of a PICU audience, too, um, that, you know, PICUs are using azithromycin uh, in addition to other antibiotic uh, courses um, because of its anti-inflammatory properties. And so, you know, does that play a role for us also? I don't know, but I, I think we're going to see more and more literature I'm, I'm hopeful we're going to see more and more literature that we can have uh, some something else in our in our armament. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another article I wanted to mention, since we're obviously running out of time, but we're going to go through them, um, is also in the Journal of Perinatology called Growth Outcomes of Small mm-hmm. for Gestational Age Preterm Infants Before and After Implementation of an Exclusive Human Milk-Based Diet. First author is Lindsay Flegg. And they are from uh, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, what was interesting is that they basically looked at, it's a multi-centered retrospective cohort study, and they looked at babies who were born small for gestational age preterm. And they looked at the difference between uh, putting babies on an exclusive human milk diet and babies on a cow's milk diet. And they looked mostly as their primary outcome as the the, the growth. I don't want to um, I don't want to. The primary outcome from growth measurements between uh, between the two uh, showed basically no difference, and even showed that maybe the length at discharge mm-hmm. was greater on average in the human milk group. So I thought that was very interesting because sometimes when we have babies who are SGA, we tend to think that we need to give them more, and this paper shows that you can actually leave them on human milk and they will do better. Um, they also showed significantly, and that's a big deal, obviously, the reduction in necrotizing enterocolitis, mm-hmm. with, um, which is obviously a huge concern when you have um, SGA. So the, the rates of neck went down from 17% in the cow's milk diet to 8% mm-hmm. in the human milk group. And surgical neck went down from 9% to 4%. Mm-hmm. So, so these, were, these were pretty big. Um, I don't know. I don't know what you felt about that because I feel that it's always so hard to. It's it's not the decision to put a baby on human milk, which is difficult. It's the right thing to do, but it's to watch them not gain weight for a while, and mm-hmm. you're like, do I supplement or do I just sit? Uh, I like this data. It sort of comforts you in just this sort of watchful waiting on human milk. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that this study is missing, which the author should consider, is. It's very population-based. I don't know what is the crematocrit on these mother's sure. milk. Uh, maybe mothers in Texas have higher calories in their breast milk. I have no idea. Maybe people <laughs> in Miami have less. I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that if um, if human milk in, in this area of the U.S. or of the globe is higher in fat content or higher in calories in whatever way, then you may get a benefit that somebody else in another place of the world may not get. And so I think this study needs to be followed by the same data with saying, well, we also did the chromatocrit on our mothers. Mm-hmm. And on average, we have 20 calories, which would make me feel good about leaving my babies just on, on human milk. But anyway, well, I thought that was an interesting study. Well, that's and that's a separate issue, right? Should we be doing chromatocrits? What can we do to lacto-engineer milk and optimize mom's own milk um, instead of instead of more additives? We should mention, obviously, that the, the study does 
did does appear to have some prolacta support. So that's just something of note. Um, sure. But I think I think the data is very good. Um, and, yeah. and I, especially that the, um, the growth didn't suffer. Like you said, I do think the fortification protocols were somewhat different. Um, so sometimes they fortified for the, uh, in the human milk, um, fortifier group, they were fortifying early 60 mLs per kilo per day. Um, and in the other groups, the cow's milk, uh, groups, cow's milk fortification groups, they were fortifying much later. For some babies, that's only a few days. For some babies, that's a lot of days. Um, so just just something uh, of note. But I think um, a lot of hospitals um, are looking at this and saying, can we afford the cost? Um, and I, you know, at some point in time, we also have to weigh the cost of, uh, you know, a, an admission that is neck or sip yeah. or death or, yeah. um, a prolonged length of stay because of feeding intolerance. And, and what does that do to, to growth? Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm not yeah, I mean, sure this can't be a cost only decision. And in fact, I, I sometimes wonder if the cost might be less. And, and, and I think we have some studies that, that show that also um, from the prolacta trials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so that, that, that was key. That's where not only did you, do you match in terms of growth, but you also can reduce potential length of stay and cost by reducing mm-hmm. NEC. So I thought that was, yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought this was interesting to to know. We we won't get into. I think we we're like you said, running out of time. We can't get into the nitty gritty. But um, this positive fluid balance associated with death and severity of brain injury and neonates with uh, HIE. First author Catherine M. Uh, Odellini. Um, this is coming from Children's National and George Washington University. Um, they looked at the association between fluid balance during therapeutic hypothermia and severity of brain injury on MRI in babies um, with HIE. So it's a secondary analysis of data that had previously been collected on this group, and they looked at the daily net positive fluid balance. Um, And they used a cutoff of about 25 mLs per kilo per day as their net positive fluid balance. And uh, they included 150 babies. Um, 50, they say, suffered adverse outcomes based on their um, MRIs, which were scored using the Barkovich criteria, um, and had significantly higher net positive fluid balance. So um, that was statistically significant. Um, So basically, the what they found is that babies who had a net higher positive fluid balance um, more frequently were found to have worse injury on MRI. Um, and so I think this is interesting. Um, I think that it it definitely um, may lead to practice change. Uh, most people are obviously using restricted fluid volumes in um, babies with HIE. One thing I, I couldn't quite tease out, though, um, is is they said adjusted for covariates, but I, I couldn't quite tell if they adjusted actually for creatinine or kidney injury, which which may, that's, that's, you know, that's the yeah, key. Yeah, that was... That's right. the key, and that's the problem with this retrospective data. That I think, I think it, it's a valid. Um, I think it's valid. I mean, it was not retrospective; but it was prospective. Correct, collected, but... it was pr- prospectively prospective observ- pr- pr- prospective observational data. 
And that was the problem is that if the fluid balance is high because the baby's kidneys are completely damaged, right. then could that just be that it's not the fluid balance that is right. a marker of higher mortality is the fact but that the end organ, multi-organ yeah. damage, yeah. I know. But that's why I think it's a good step in the right direction to be followed by mm -hmm. a more prospective sort of trial for sure. And they may have the data. So um, that would yeah. be interesting, uh, interesting to see for sure. Let's see. Um, oh, I wanted to just touch on this one. Uh, effect of prenatal marijuana exposure on sleep-wake cycles and amplitude uh, EEG. Um, I knew you were going to bring that one up. <laughs> First author, uh, Rebecca um, Polak. The, um, I'm sorry, I don't have the... This is They're from, from Me Memphis, Tennessee. That's right, from Tennessee. Um, and so, well, you know, I like amplitude EEG. I'm a, I, I like, I like studying sleep. Uh, I also, uh, am someone who doesn't to totally rule out, uh, breast milk, um, from mommies who test positive with marijuana. Um, so this was a, I was excited to see this. Uh, I'm a little conflicted about it, but I'll tell you about it anyway. So they looked at, um, uh, THC exposed newborn. So mommies, uh, screened positive, um, for having, uh, used, uh, marijuana. And, um, then they basically followed, uh, these 30 mother infant dyads, um, and followed the babies with amplitude EEG and monitoring for sleep wake cycle, which we know is very important, um, for long-term, uh, brain development. Um, and so unfortunately they did find that, um, there was an absence of sleep-wake cycles on amplitude EEG, um, in many of the babies who were, um, prenatally exposed, not all of them, um, but many of them. And it was statistically significant as compared to the cohort of unexposed babies. So, um, this puts me in quite a predicament because I think both breast milk and sleep are important. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I think, uh, obviously we should try to find a way to give babies milk, uh, that is not containing any other substance. Um, and so counseling, I, counseling is key. Counseling is key. That's exactly it. And I think if we really talk to parents and we say, we want you to provide milk, we're going to help support you provide milk, but we, we need you to, to, to stop. If you can, we can help you stop. Uh, I think that, um, that maybe we can do both. Um, I, I'm not sure we always think, have to yeah. pick. Yeah. I think it's the same thing. Um, because, because pot and mar marijuana is becoming more and more legal mm -hmm. around the country. There's this, there's this jump that people create in their mind. We're saying, well, because it's becoming legal, it's okay for me to take. Mm -hmm. And, and we haven't really recategorized marijuana in the alcohol That's and right. cigarette sort of category, which is, yes, it's legal. Yes, you can purchase it, but it's not good for you. And if you had asked a prospective mother, hey, do you think it's good to drink alcohol all the way through during your pregnancy? Everybody agrees. No, it's not good. Mm -hmm. So it's the same. We have to keep counseling the mothers because, again, we're still in that phase where it's becoming legal. And people are saying, well, since it's becoming legal, it's okay to take, right? It's like, no, it's still not okay to take. But you yeah. have to be considerate and moderated right. in how you use it. Well, especially because, you know, in THC levels, I, I don't know, I, I'm not sure how, how, how useful they are. But in this study, the THC levels did not correlate with the EEG abnormalities. And so I, you know, I, we don't know what is a, what is a, 
in acceptable dose response. And we certainly don't know be because, um, because of the way marijuana is manufactured and sold in this country, we, we don't know what everybody's getting anyways. Um, That's a whole nother um, discussion. So I'll leave the listeners to, I'm not going to tell them what, if I've changed my (laughs) practice yet, I'll think about it a little longer. What else Um, did you want us to cover? Let me run through a few articles. I like that one called uh, Urinary Ferritin, a potential non-invasive way to screen NICU patients for iron deficiency. Mm -hmm. It's from first author, Eric Gerday, and it has a bunch of star neonatologists in there. Last author is Robert Christensen. Uh, Second to last author is Robin Robin Oles. And um, yeah, so what was interesting is obviously as we're using more and more EPO, DARDEPO, um, we're trying to monitor ferritin levels and hemoglobin levels, and it's always blood draws. And, and if you're using EPO, you're trying to be mindful of how much blood you're That's using. Right. And so this study was looking at um, whether we could use urine ferritin as a sort of uh, correlate for serum ferritin. And uh, this prospective uh, analysis basically was very well designed. They, they collected pairs of sample, paired serum and urine, and they find uh, iron limited erythropoiesis by a um, R-E-T-H-E, which um, is the um, which is the, uh, the the ferritin the 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 reticulocyte hemoglobin content of less than fifth percentile, and they got 49 pairs, and urine ferritin correlated with serum ferritin, mm-hmm. and the corrected urine ferritin of less than twelve had a sensitivity of eighty two percent. Um, and a specificity of 100% for detecting iron-limited erythropoiesis with a positive Great. predictive value of 100%. Mm-hmm. I thought this is this is cool. I've yeah. worked on a protocol for our institution on EPO and monitoring of ferritin levels. I think urinary ferritin is potentially a game changer. We should use it. It's less blood from the baby. Urine is readily available. <laughs> uh, we should start using it. So that's, not, that's one article. It's not always easy to collect, but neither is blood, really. When you think about how many times you have to stick a baby. It, does, it is, doesn't have to be done sterile. That's right. It's, it's, that's right. And you can just put a bag, and if it falls, and you get it again. It's so much better than having to prick the baby. <laughs> well, I'm sure some of, the, some of our listeners are nurses, and I'm sure they'll say, yeah, but oh, they're gonna, it, they're took me, curse me out. it took me 48 <laughs> hours to collect that bag urine. Because it sometimes gonna... does, but um, but but so what if it takes that long, right? In this particular instance, um, and the iron studies are a lot of blood. So I think anytime we can use urine, it's a it's a slam dunk. I, there's a lot of correction that has to happen with that data, but uh, I think that could be easily um, done. So and, very cool. yeah, another one that was interesting from, again, the University of Florida, mm-hmm. um, called Hypertension in Neonates Treated with Intravitreal Bevacizumab right. for Retinopathy of Prematurity. I'm making fun of UF because you come from UF. I don't want I listeners to believe. If they haven't listened to the prior episode, they're going to think I'm like dissing the University of Florida. No, I'm just saying this is where you train. That's right. The second author is Michael Weiss. That's right. And they looked at... My at babies. <laughs> right. So... Um, Babies who received IV um, IV monoclonal antibodies, the bevacizumab, developed new onset systemic hypertension mm-hmm. after treatment. I thought this was a very interesting study mm-hmm. for our friends uh, in ophthalmology. And again, one more problem with um, with this new. I know it's just it was so pr- such a promising intervention, and more and more stuff is coming out. So now, on top of 
the long-term outcomes that that are now a bit less stellar, uh, we have this issue of systemic hypertension. So anyway, uh, I thought this is an interesting paper for people to look at. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it takes away from the intervention, and obviously, we're using more and more of it. Um, but it's something definitely to be monitoring for. Yeah, another one that I thought was interesting was called blood biomarkers for neonatal mm-hmm. HIE in the presence and absence of sentinel events. Mm-hmm. This was by uh, first author Eric Brony, and they wanted to determine if there were some serum biomarkers that could represent different pathways of injury. I thought that was interesting because you know. Um, there's sometimes babies that have had an insult in utero and when they come out, their base success is corrected, mm-hmm. but they look really sick. And I've seen that before where they come out, they're limp. You have to intubate them and you do the initial gas and the P success is like plus one and it makes yeah. no sense. And you wonder, did they autocorrect because it happened such a long time ago? And so you don't really have a perinatal event mm-hmm. because at the time of the delivery, there's nothing really acute going on, but the perinatal event happened maybe at home. The mother wasn't sure doesn't matter That's right. but so what, what was interesting is that they looked at some of these um they looked at some of these uh assays and they were able to um identify 277 babies that were 190 um uh, that were treated with with cooling and um the the markers that they looked at were il10 and vegf mm-hmm. and they found that uh babies it, so I'm just going to quote the, the, the article. Although the, although the degree of metabolic acidosis was similar, repeated measure analysis showed that during the initial three days of life, so in the first 72 hours, uh, babies with HIE in the absence of sentinel event had a 41% decreased VEGF, p-value 0.02, mm-hmm. and 62% increase in IL-10, p-value 0.005. And so I thought that was interesting um, because sometimes uh, you can t- get taken off track Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have a sentinel event. And so I thought these are interesting markers. Now, I yeah. think we should be very careful in not using these markers too leniently and saying, oh, I'm going to just check it. And then you're going to start cooling everybody because you see a little rise in um, in the IL-10 or a decrease in the VEGF. But anyway, I thought this was interesting. I think people should check out this paper as well. Well, and we're learning more and more about those biomarkers. And there are lots of groups in this across the world that are studying um, biomarkers, particularly for their predictive, you know, um, uh, use um, in determining outcomes, but certainly just in diagnosing HIE. So I do think in the future, they will be part of our um, diagnosis, mm-hmm. diagnostic consideration. But we're getting there. Um, the last paper, that's my last paper of the of the week, the Journal of Perinatology, Effect of Blood Transfusions on mm-hmm. Cognitive Development in Very Low Birth Weight Infants. Uh, this is another paper from Robin Oles. And again, making a comeback for the uh, for EPO and RBPO as a sort of protective entity against cognitive uh, mm-hmm. impairment at 18 to 22 months. And they basically um, uh, looked at cognitive scores, 18 to 22 months, and they found them to be inversely correlated with transfusion volumes. And among those who received more than one transfusion, cognitive scores were significantly higher mm-hmm. Um, in the ESA-treated group. ESA includes EPO and RBPO. At three to five to four years, transfusions were not correlated with cognitive scores. Again, I think there was this big trial that looked at EPO as a potential neuroprotector, and it was not really conclusive. Does that mean that EPO is not beneficial? I'm sure it is somehow a little beneficial. I think this is what this paper is showing. Mm -hmm. But again, uh, EPO as a neuroprotective agent making a comeback on this one. Um, yeah, not, uh, yeah. 
And we know that anemia in childhood studies is is related to, you know, cognitive outcomes. So it would stand to reason that, you know, your your exposure to anemia in the perinatal period has some has some effect on that. And then obviously what happens with your nutrition, your genetic, your biology, and that that changes into childhood. So very interesting. Yeah. I had a, a few too I'd like to to highlight. I thought this also the Journal of Perinatology using uh, buprenorphine to treat NAS, a quality improvement mm-hmm. study. Um uh first author, Sagar uh, Bandari. Um so this came out of Wake Forest um, University. Um, and so uh-huh. uh, in brief, basically, uh, this, this was a facility that um, sees, you know, a, a not insignificant amount of, of NAS, but they were trying to see what, what could we uh, do better. So this was a quality improvement uh, study using a number of PDSA cycles. But um, this cycle, they highlighted um, babies uh, who received buprenorphine. Um, and I think importantly, they didn't see any adverse uh, reactions reported. Um, they did still need some adjunct um, therapy, um, but they showed a reduction um, in both days of treatment from 14 and a half to eight and a half days and a reduction in length of stay from 18 and a half to 13 days, um, which uh, I think is no small, no small no. amount of days. So no, I thought that Ask was any mother. interesting. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, the other thing I thought that we should highlight, and you know, I'm a stickler for Billy Rubens, um, was this article, um, intravenous immunoglobulin G in the treatment of ABO hemolytic disease in the newborn during the early neonatal um, period, uh, a retrospective study. Um, uh, lead author, uh, Jairang Pan. Um, and so this was uh, a study um, out of, uh, the children's, China. uh, hospital. Yep. in the people's Republic of China. Um, so they were looking at, uh, babies who got IVIG and babies who didn't, um, get IVIG for moderate to severe ABO incompatibility, um, at less than seven days of, of life. And so they enrolled 46, uh, patients into the IVIG group and 28 patients into the phototherapy only group. And there was no significant difference in duration of phototherapy, hospitalization period, need for exchange transfusion, other transfusions, um, or other um, bilirubin-induced neurologic sequela between the two groups. Um, and so, you know, IVIG has been in discussion in the uh, more recently um, about its uh, potential adverse effects. And so, you know, we were all, we're always saying, well, if it prevents you know exchange transfusion, then you know p- potentially the risk is is worth it. But if it doesn't prevent exchange transfusion, um, then it's it's definitely something for us to really think about before we administer. I mean, is this? I was I was purposefully staying away because I think it's a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I mean, right? Uh, are you going to change your practice and hold off on IVIG? I mean, you're giving phototherapy. The levels, the, the, yeah, the situation that I was You feel like you have to do think- something. You feel like you have to do mm-hmm. something. Um, but I, I just, I just think, and that may not be the right answer. Sometimes doing nothing is the right or keep keep doing what you're doing. The things that we know have proven benefit. I, I think we need more data, but I think the data is coming um, for sure. 
Right, and that's the thing. I think they um, they're briefly mentioning in the background this this famous Cochrane review mm-hmm. that was published on IVIG right. for hemolytic disease of neonates, and I think it was published in 2018 or something like that. And it's true that it could not make a definitive statement in terms of IVIG being definitely beneficial in preventing exchange transfusions. But there was a lot of issues with the data, obviously, and the Cochrane acknowledged that. And I remember the Cochrane, I mean, I have the Cochrane review now in front of me, and it Mm -hmm. says overall results show a significant reduction in the need for exchange transfusion in infants treated with IVIG. And the applicability of the result is limited because of low to very low quality of evidence. And the two studies... Uh, that had the least risk of bias showed no uh, benefit in reducing the need for uh, exchange transfusion. So at the end, when you combine all these things together, they couldn't really make a definitive recommendation. So, And I think that's um, where we are. Would, yeah. And I think I would be, so I would be careful with that article, especially also considering that their number of patients, again, is very small. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to stop using IVIG. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I think we have to keep talking. Um, there are still more articles, but we are really pushing the limits on time here today. Yeah. So. No, nobody's listening Nobody, at this point. Everybody's anyway. exhausted. <laughs> Everybody's like, hey, we're done. Okay. Should we call it a day? I think we have to. We have to. <laughs> um, you want to read us a review before we uh, head off into the sunset? Sure, I, I will. Um, the, we have. I'm going to read you two reviews from our from a same reviewer, <laughs> but we <laughs> really touched us. We we really appreciate. We we love getting reviews and feedback from you guys. Um, this one um, comes from Dr. Mona Shehab. I'm not a 13 year old teenager. I'm greater than 60 years old. And if you saw her, you wouldn't believe it. Very uncomfortable with social media who became mesmerized with these discussions on Twitter. Let's grow the neonatology family on social media and learn from each other. Thank you, Ben and Daphne. Thank you, Dr. Narvi. Uh, an additional tweet that I couldn't help, but it just made me chuckle. I loved it. It's my favorite, my favorite response so far. Uh, Peanut butter and jelly. That is Daphna and Ben. The chemistry and energy in your podcast is so spot on. I look forward every week to be educated then go the next day and impress my colleagues with the knowledge I got from the incubator. So I don't know if we're really peanut butter and jelly, but I'm pleased that people um, are finding uh, the the stuff they learn here uh, useful. Um, we know Mona in, in full disclosure. Uh, we we really appreciate her support. So, um, thank and she, you guys. she has very, yeah, the reason I was very happy about these tweets is because Mona has a very high standard. So I, I was very afraid when she started listening. She's a tough happy critic. To see that we made, we made the, the cut. <laughs> so please keep sending in your reviews. You know, we read every single one. We really appreciate it. And continue. Um, Continue engaging with us on Twitter and please send us questions for the book club. Um, and if you feel like you want to share something on the show and want to be on the show, let us know. We, uh, we're more than happy to have anybody on the show. We're not, we're not very strict. Uh, you can come and talk to us about your experience and uh, we'll make it easy for you. So, so please engage with us and, and let us know. We do love to chat. We do love to chat. That's right. <laughs> All right, Ben, have right, a good definitely. rest of your trip. Be safe. And, um, yep. We'll Thank see, you. We'll I'll see, see you next, next week, week, I guess. Okay. All right, Daphne. That was fun. That Bye. always is. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. 
You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUPodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. NICU, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.